0: Heavenly Father, we we believe, or at least we need to believe, everything You have said is true of us in Christ. Help us. Reveal Yourself to us. Let us walk and live out our identity. In Christ's name, amen. If things happen too quickly in, in the public service, remember there is a website and there is even an app. Believe it or not, yes, there's an app for that, Crosspoint HB. Anything you care to do, care to know, should be on the website. Prayer requests, information, giving, upcoming events, ways to connect, ways to make friends, it should all be there, so please use that as needed. This morning we're going to talk about identity, and the first service, frankly, was a little disappointing by their lack of cooperation. All right? I am looking for better, more hopeful things from you. You with me? (laughs) Eh, Okay. That's fine. Great. Uh, Much better than 9 o'clock. Still a little disappointing, but hey, public speakers should never shame the audience into a reaction they want to get out of them. Here's what I want you to do. We're talking today about identity. Identity theft is in the news all the times. Apparently Hundreds of millions of people are entitled to 125 bucks from one of these giant corporations that had all of our data. You may not get that much, but you should at least try, I think, because they stole your identity at some point. Anybody had their identity stolen? Really? You people are really good at security. I had my identity stolen when we were in Mexico. We were living in Chihuahua, and some guy in Chicago bought a whole bunch of TV sets, apparently, with, uh, with our MasterCard, which didn't have much credit on it anyway, but... Um, It's a real thing in the 21st century to have your so-called identity stolen. And on a much more important level, in life, in America, you've got an endless carousel of identities that you're invited to try on. So, I want you to… here's a thought exercise. If you'll take the little sheet that's in your bulletin, and here's where your cooperation may or may not break down, but I'd really like you to have that sheet because we're going to read the Bible together from it. Just complete this sentence. I am what? How would you define yourself? How would you put your identity down in writing? I am… Don't call it out because it might get confusing. I am… After the first service, a guy said, tell the second service to put their wife higher to the list. Put husband way up there, okay, if you happen to be married. There's a tip, guys. What are you? Who are you? Not what do you do, but who are you? What's your identity? Everybody got it? There's a lot of ways to answer that sentence, isn't it? For myself, I'm I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend, I'm a student. There's all kinds of ways I can answer that question, and that's part of the confusion. One of the hard parts of all of life, but especially when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, is the American carousel of identity is spinning really fast and inviting you to figure yourself out, discover, or Make or remake who you are. I've struggled with this my whole life because I'm bicultural. I'm an American citizen, but I grew up in Mexico. Entonces he hablado español desde pequeño. That means I've spoken Spanish since I was little. And it's, I know, right? It's weird, I know. That, that's the exact reaction I get all the time. Really fun to have a cute wife and tour Mexico and have people talk about her and you talk back. <laughs> It's confusing because my name's Bruce Garner and it doesn't get any more anglo than that. Bruce, Scottish, Garner, English, pero habla español. Es muy impresionante, no muy contundente. No sé qué está pasando. Those of you who speak Spanish are getting the jokes. Those of you who are not, I'm sorry. But it's weird. Because my parents took me when I was 12 years old, I was in a tiny little public grade school in a small town in Mexico, and they dropped me into Amarillo, Texas, into Bonham Junior High School, home of the Mustangs, where everybody knew each other. In this small town, they'd all grown up together, and apparently they had made all the friends they needed to make. They didn't have room for one more, especially the weird kid who is white but acts like he's not. And it was the most miserable year of my entire life. Part of it was I tried by weeks sometimes, sometimes by the day, I would try on different identities to see where I could fit in. So I noticed there were nerds, and these were people who were really serious about getting good grades. And I'd been a nerd in sixth grade way back in Mexico, so I thought, I'll I'll be a nerd. And then they started teaching algebra, and I said, no, can't qualify as a nerd anymore. So, I didn't do that, and then I noticed that my grandpa was a cowboy and actually had a working ranch, so for a regrettable time, I wore Wrangler jeans and a big belt buckle and lizard skin boots. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) That's what the young scholars at Bonham Junior High School did. They laughed at me because pretty obviously that ain't it. It doesn't fit. I noticed there were athletes. And I'd played whatever in season, but as it turns out, I played at a very low level at my little grade school in Mexico. I decided that since a ninth grade student who was my family friend, he was one of the few who was kind to me, he was a ninth grader and he was a ranked wrestler, I decided that's it. Trace Lamb is a great wrestler. Maybe I can be a great wrestler. I could not be a great wrestler. (laughs) There was a young man there named Lane Meek. Mind you, this is when I'm 13, I'm almost 50 now, but I remember his name because Lane was ranked fourth in the great state of Texas as a schoolboy wrestler. And let me tell you, if you've never done something, don't try it for the first time in a tryout with anyone who's ranked number four in any state in the union, particularly one as big as Texas. He destroyed me. It became a legendary story of all the different things he did to me. (laughs) And I continued searching for identity. And some of you still are. And you don't have to. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes people and literally, according to his words, gives them new birth. He makes us new people. That's what Paul said. He said that He makes us one by one into a whole new person. And he explains it in verses like this. I want you to read this with me right off the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is an individual offer. This is made to individuals. This is an offer made to you. The Bible says this, therefore, read with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a... Not remodeled, not remade, not patched up, not improved. You are a whole new person. And that is amazingly good news because the best American culture has to offer you right now is identity in one of two ways. You can either work really hard and make your own, And that's what I was trying to do in seventh grade. I was trying to figure out where I fit. And really, you you can be you can be in your eighties, you can be in your nineties, I suppose, and still be on that quest of trying to craft yourself, make yourself into the person you think you should be. A person that can live with yourself. That's one path. It leads to burnout, it leads to distress and anxiety, it leads to the goal line always moving forward, but that's the primary thing American culture offers, that you really can be anything you choose to be, so get out there and hustle and make something of yourself. We actually use that phrase, think about it, make something of yourself. You're not much, you're not anything, so go make something of yourself. That's one way. The other's actually sadder. And that's a thought running through our culture that you are the result of the things that have happened to you or been done to you. There's a group of students at a local Christian university. There, they formed a student group to support each other, and what they decided to call themselves is broken. They were inviting people to identify themselves as broken, and that was the whole thing. That's not what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's already here. Now, let's be realistic and biblical. How many of you are broken? Can I be the first to raise my hand? Absolutely. But that's the point of the rescue. That's the point of discipleship, that when you come to Christ at that moment, vertically, eternally, you are made into a new person, and the rest of your life is learning and growing and walking out the identity that is already yours in Christ. I'm going to send you an outline this week, just a list of Scripture truth, to put this identity down into your life. I've used this list for over 20 years to continually remind myself who God says I am compared to the voices inside and outside of me that say I am anything except what Jesus died to make me. That's why identity is so important. And the passage today is addressed to people in 2 Peter. If you'll look there with me, please, or you can look on your bulletin outline, the passage is there. This short little passage, and what I hope is a short little message, is written to people who are suffering. The first few verses of Peter talk, to them, talk about them as those who have been scattered. What's happening? Who are they? They are Jews and Gentiles. They're very different kinds of people. Some come from Judaism. Some come from pagan first century religions. What they have in common now is Jesus. And what they also have in common now is persecution. The Roman Empire, for its own evil reasons, has decided that Christians are the enemy. Some scholars believe that this comes as a direct result. This persecution comes after Nero burns Rome and decides to make the Christians the scapegoat for it. And they are in the process of losing everything they've ever held dear. They've lost their homes Many of them have lost family, they've lost their money and their livelihoods, some of them are literally running for their lives. Toward the end of the letter, Peter talks about what they're going through as a fiery trial. In other words, this isn't an inconvenience, this isn't just a bummer. It feels like their lives are on fire. And in the middle of all that persecution, because that's what the whole letter is about, is about suffering as a Christian, Peter writes them this to remind them who they are, because the Christian faith is not only that you individually are new, it means that we together are a new people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, since it's on the outline, would you, you're doing an amazing job by the way, thank you, would you read that with me as well? This is what it says of those of you who have chosen to follow Christ. Those of you who experience new life in Christ, if you got saved up at Hume Lake, this is already true about you. You won't understand everything I tell you. I don't really deeply understand everything I'm saying this morning, but this is who you are the moment you trust Jesus as your Savior. Read it with me. It says, but you are a chosen race Let it soak in. This is who a Christian is. This is who we are together as a family. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His, for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is only one thing. That is privilege. You're not, it's not being announced to you that you have the opportunity to try. It's not that a reward is being set out in front of you like a teacher might do at the beginning of the semester and telling you this is the standard for an A, This is what it takes to be my friend. This is what it takes to make this team. This is what it takes to get this job, to work for this company, to win this award, to get these benefits. No, an announcement is being made not of achievement but of privilege. That's the whole thing. If you can understand that, you'll understand what separates Jesus and Christianity from every other thing that people have ever come up with to navigate through life physically or spiritually. All of life is hustle and make it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus already did all of it, and He offers it to you in exchange for your sin, your guilt, your shame, your wickedness, your darkness, your secret life. He offers to trade His life for yours, and that is your privilege. It's not a gift that you've earned, it's a gift that He has purchased at the cost of His own life that He offers, as I'm going to show you, simply because He has decided to love you. And there's not anything else in your life, even from the people who love you and care for you the most, that is likely to work anything like that. Everything else in life is transactional. It's not based on privilege. It's not based on gift. It's not based on grace. It's based on achievement. Those of you who have jobs, if you don't believe me, just stop showing up for two weeks. See what happens. Stop talking to your parents. Stop talking to your best friend and see what happens. See how long that relationship can endure in the face of your bad behavior. Precious few of us, if any, have anyone on earth who truly loves us unconditionally, that loves us at His own expense, that has promised to be faithful even when we are faithless. This is the good news of Jesus. Every other spiritual thought, certainly every religion, even the religion that carries the name Christianity, but invites people to earn it, ignores that these things are all achieved by the grace and the mercy of God. And Peter draws on Old Testament Scripture using the only Bible that everyone had at that time because the New Testament is still being written, and he uses four phrases to explain to them just how privileged they are. I want you to see them one by one quickly. He says, but you are a what? A chosen race. And that right there tells you that it has to be God's doing because one thing you cannot choose for yourself in this life and change is your birth. That's why being a white kid in Mexico with an Anglo-sounding name who identified as a Mexican, who actually as a small child, I desperately wanted my name to be Mario. Because <laughs> there was a great, great soccer player that played for Argentina in 1978, Mario Kempes, And I thought he was cool, and he was a tremendous soccer player. And I actually talked to my mom, would it be okay if we stopped calling me Bruce and started calling me Mario? No, she said. Go out there and face it like a man. Okay, well, here we go. Can't change the family, can't change the people group I'm born into. That first strange thing that Peter mentions already tells you about the fact that your salvation comes from God alone. Here's how Jesus explained it. John 3 verse 3 says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the religious man he's talking about saying, how does that work? I'm a grown man, I can't go back into my mother's womb. And Jesus said, I'm not talking about earthly birth, I'm talking about the new birth. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you might be 14, 17, 18 years old, but spiritually, you're a whole new person. You are now in the family of God. And what Peter means by saying we are a chosen race is that your life itself comes from God. Then he says, you are a chosen race, a, it gets a little more complicated, a royal priesthood. Now, what's that about? Because most of us don't know many priests. Most of us aren't comfortable in the presence of priests. You see with the guy with the collar, even I as a pastor, oh man, it's a guy in a collar. I better straighten up here. What's a priest? What's the biblical idea of a priest? A priest is someone who has access to God. Someone who can come into God's presence and speak to Him. Offer sacrifices. Enjoy relationship with Him. Peter's pulling Scriptures, which we're going to read out of the Old Testament to explain to these suffering Christians that whatever else happens to them, no matter how bad it gets, even if they suffer, even if they kill them, this is their identity. They have access to God for themselves. Crosspoint, students, imagine this, believe this, you have the amazing privilege of speaking to the God of the universe in the name of His Son, Jesus, who died for you, and God will listen to you. I mean, that's mind-blowing. How many people can you have speak to you at once and still pay attention to any of them? My capacity is one, and usually not that well because my phone's doing stuff in my pocket, and I'm kind of distracted. Your heavenly Father has given all of His children, all the people He brought into His family. By the new birth in Christ, He has brought you into His family, and amazingly, in His infinite capacity and love, He can speak to each one of us and listen to each one of us. He can give access to each of us as if we were the only ones. You can speak to God for yourself, And Peter was reading that from his Old Testament and realizing that the privileges of Israel now belong to everyone who trusted Christ. Here's what he was thinking about, I'm sure, when he wrote that. God is speaking to Moses in Exodus, and He says, "'Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant,' You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You have access to me, God is saying. The third phrase, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, what's that about? Holy means that you're separate, that you belong to God. Nation means that we collectively have agreed together to live together under a certain set of rules. And we say it every day. You can't do that. Why not? You can't. We have this not only culture, we have laws that we agree this is the way life works. This is how we're going to treat each other. This is really good news because it means, Crosspoint, it means, students, that you don't have to figure it out for yourself that God who is the source of life, He has told you what life is, how it works, what its blessings and consequences are, and it's all right here. You're not self-governed. Please understand that, even and especially maybe if you just started trusting Jesus, what that means is you don't belong to yourself anymore. You are His You don't have to figure it out, and you don't get to figure it out. Your heavenly father, who is also the creator and the king of the whole universe, he knows how life works. He doesn't have opinions. He has laws. He's a king. He's sovereign. He spoke everything into existence. He knows everything about you at a level that you cannot begin to fathom, and he knows what is right, so you as part of his holy nation are ruled by God the chaos that we're currently experiencing in the United States, and I don't even want to get into the stories because what happened yesterday happened at my childhood mall. That place where that shooting happened is the mall that I thought was paradise on earth when we left northern Mexico and returned to the United States. And there was more nonsense and more wickedness overnight And the reason that is happening at the spiritual level, that evil is pouring out of people's lives because we are returning quickly to a day in the Bible called the Days of the Judges where we're told these horrific stories, dark, awful, violent, sexual, awful stories. And the phrase that runs through the whole book is this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we are. When a group of people, when every individual in a group, including a nation, a city, decide to do what they think is best, no one feels safe. Everyone's in danger, but we are, according to this passage in 1 Peter, we are a chosen race. In other words, we have our life from God. We we are a royal priesthood. In other words, we have access to God. And we are a holy nation, a holy people. In other words, we're governed by God. And then Peter says, we are a people for His own possession. And what that means is that you're treasured by God. You're not possessed, you're not owned by God the way a tool might be, the way a plaything might be you're in a relationship with God like the relationship a father or a mother has with their newborn. You're not only owned, you're not only possessed, you're treasured. And for those of you who are very young, and I love that you're sitting right here, I just absolutely love it. I can't tell you how thrilled I am about it. You can't actually indulge an old man. You can't really yet understand what it's like to have your own kid. Don't be in a hurry for that, by the way. <laughs> Wait on God, have His timing, His, His choice for your spouse. But you can't understand the depth of God's love. You never really understand it completely, but you understand it much more when you're a parent. The first time someone put in my arms as a scared 20-something-year-old guy our firstborn? There's just absolutely nothing like it. I'm going to embarrass my kids now, but I treasure them. One of the abiding memories of my fatherhood is my older boy was twitchy. He was a baby and cantankerous. But one afternoon for about five glorious minutes, he is a newborn. I, as a tired young dad, we laid side by side in bed. And for the first time in his very young, just-started life, his eyes focused enough that he could look right at me. And I realized the kid sees me. And he's not crying. (laughs) He's kind of into it. So, I just looked into his little deep blue eyes. They would change. He was so little, they were still blue. And I just looked at him, and I thought to myself, I can't believe they let me bring him home. I'm an exhausted idiot. This is amazing. And then I began to understand a little bit how much... These verses mean when it speaks to us about the way that God loves us. In Deuteronomy, Moses is going to die on the wrong side of the river, but he's going to tell Israel again who they are. You'll pick up the phrases. This is exactly what Peter is talking about when hundreds and hundreds of years later he tells Christians, this is who you are. He said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, see the phrase, for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is amazing. This is grace. This is mercy right here. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Check out that phrase. You might want to find that and underline it in your Bible. The way God loves is He sets His love on you and He chooses you. What does that mean? Why does God love you? This is so simple, but it's the paradox. It's the mystery of God's love. The reason God loves you is because God loves you. The reason God loves you is because He does. It has nothing to do with you. He's spelling that out for them. The Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. In other words, long before you were born, God promised to love you, and that's why He does. He loves you because He loves you, and it has nothing to do with you, and that's the best news I could possibly give you, because if we ever make your achievement, your standing, your intelligence, your holiness, your goodness, if we make that the standard of God loving you back, guess what? You're toast. And your past and your conscience tells you so. And people who don't care for you that much, or sometimes people who do but want to be mean in that moment, they'll remind you of your failures. God doesn't. In fact, it says He forgets them. It says He separates his, your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west. It says He puts them behind His back in the depths of the ocean. All of these are word pictures to, from God's point of view. All of that is done and settled in Christ, and now He has set His love on you. He loves you because He does. He loves you because He loves you. Taken together, look at what you've just been told about your identity in Christ. You have life from God, you have access to God, you are ruled by God, and best of all, maybe for me, you are treasured by God. That's all true, whether you've been walking with Jesus for three days or 50 years. All of that is true of every one of God's kids in Christ. And notice, this is all, we're told, by God's mercy. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our privilege is only by God's mercy. God deals with His children with grace and mercy alone. What's the difference? Grace gives you something you do not deserve, and mercy spares you what you so richly deserve. Grace gives you gifts that you don't deserve, and mercy spares you consequences that you do Church, students, all of this have been telling you about all this time. It's only by God's mercy. It has nothing to do with you. It is because your heavenly Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, His blessed Holy Spirit, are this good. God has set His love on you. And what that means is, if it's all by God's privilege, it means that there's no room left for pride. A proud Christian should be a contradiction. Be careful, don't offend the people sitting next to you. But how many of you know a proud Christian? How many of you struggle with pride? We all do. That should be dead. We should kill that daily. Why? Because this standing was given to us in Christ By His death and His resurrection, these people that were reading this letter are living in the difficult years after the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is racing across the Roman Empire. It is literally changing the culture. It is our culture 2,000 years later is largely a byproduct of the ideas that the gospel set in motion 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. Ideas like justice and love and faith and mercy and grace… All of those came from Christ. It literally changed the world, and we have no room, no reason for any kind of pride. And the last part of this passage and the last part of this message is that God did all this for a reason. Did you notice? I'm going to read you the first part and see if you can see why God did all this for you. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm going to stop teaching just for a second. You're going to study with me. Why did God give you this new identity in Christ? to proclaim His excellencies. God did all this for you so that you would tell everyone around you how good He is. Now, what do most people that you know spend their time proclaiming? How good they are. Like one man said, you've heard me say this before, but it's one of my favorite sayings, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. That's the human condition. Peter is announcing, in spite of your suffering, in the midst of your suffering, nothing that they are doing to you changes who you are. You may have lost your job, you may have lost your calling, you may have lost your family, you may may have lost your friendship, you may have lost your freedom, but you are all of this to God. He's given you life, he's given you access to you, he loves you, he rules over you, he's in charge of everything, he takes charge of you, and the purpose of doing all that for you is so that you will tell others how great he is, how he brought you out of the darkness of your former life into his marvelous light. So all of you, and especially students, if you just got saved, it's especially important for you to be his witnesses because you met someone up at Hume Lake that you didn't know until Jesus walked into your life and took over. And you're better positioned than anyone, maybe in this room, including me, to be a fervent, clear witness to people that you now understand are still in the darkness you were in a few weeks ago. You were in until you met Jesus. And all you're going to do is proclaim His excellence. You're going to tell people how good He is. What's a witness do? A witness is a person who says what they heard and saw. That's it. If you've ever been called as a witness and you say, well, I think they'll tell you. We don't care what you think. What'd you see? What'd you hear? What'd you read? What happened? Tell us what happened to you. Tell us what you experienced. That's it. How many of you are qualified to tell others what Jesus has done for you? That wasn't a rhetorical question. How many of you are qualified to tell someone in darkness what Jesus did for you? All of us. Where will you do it? Wherever God has placed you. That shame and the guilt of the past, those things that rise up and tell you that none of it's true, God allows you that memory. He allows you a memory that He Himself has chosen not to have of you. Think about that for a second. You can still remember things that God has chosen to forget. That blows my mind every time I think about it, including just now. I have a keen sense of memory and shame and guilt about things that God in His grace has chosen to forget. He doesn't account for them anymore. I still do. Why does He still allow me that memory? To remind me of what He saved me from and to tell others in the same kind of trouble, He can do for you what He did for me. And if every person in this room and the hundreds of people who attend this church would see themselves as a witness, maybe not a street preacher, maybe so, probably not, but a witness on the job, in the classroom, in your friendships, in your family, so that you're the person of peace in all the chaos in your office. You're a person of reliability, of holiness, of goodness in the chaos of your school campus. You're a person who has hope in a society that is quickly losing it, that is immersed in anxiety instead. You, with all your struggles and your continued anxiety, you keep coming back to the faith and the hope and the trust of Jesus Christ because you're beginning to understand that what I just told you is true, not because I said it, but because God did. I'm telling you simply this, your privilege comes with a purpose, and your purpose is to proclaim God, to not live in the darkness, to remember that you've been rescued from the darkness, but keep speaking to people in the darkness, not to tell them about what you've done, but to tell them what God has done for you and what He graciously offers to do for them as well. See, if you take that to heart, it'll change your whole week, it'll change your life. If you walk into that office, that schoolyard, that campus, that job, that hobby, that retirement, that recreation, whatever God has given you, whatever season of life you're in, you walk into that as His proclaimer. You wait for His opportunities, you take them with courage when they're given. You can be what Israel wasn't. You can be a light shining in the darkness. And people can come to trust the same Savior that rescued you. Don't miss your purpose. Students, I'll close talking to you. Hope I haven't made you uncomfortable by talking to you directly. I do it only because I've prayed for you for so many years. And I'm so thrilled to hear the reports, all the good things that God did up at Hume Lake you actually have your whole lives ahead of you. You can be the greatest Christians that this church and this generation has ever seen. Your spiritual potential in Christ literally is unlimited. You can live as holy, you can live as purposeful, you can live as peaceful as you choose to be because it's all yours in Christ. The question really is not whether God is and God will do these things for you, whether he's already granted you these privileges, he has. The question is whether you'll live your purpose in Christ to let the world know not how good you've been or what you've done, but how great he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. There's so little in me and not in my worst moments that believes this. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy that continually call out to me and to us, reminding us who we are in Christ. Help all of us, young and old, men and women, to live on purpose, to make You known, to rest in our identity, to trust You when we know we can't trust ourselves to remember Your grace and Your mercy, Lord, when our sins and our past scream out to us. Thank You that that's all covered in Jesus Christ. If there's a single person here, here, Lord, who does not know You yet, I pray that they would turn to You right now and ask You, Jesus, to save them. Help these who have just come to faith live for You. Make them know, Lord, by Your grace, how dearly they are loved. And help us all proclaim Your excellencies.